Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Josh Mall. As Andrew pointed out, I go by a lot of titles here, depending on uh, the need. So I am your assistant pastor or associate pastor or executive pastor, pastor of discipleship. But this Sunday, I am your preaching pastor. So um, uh, I am excited to uh, preach out of Philippians today. If you were with us last week, we launched our new series in Philippians. We've concluded Genesis. Here at Griggs, we like to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, line by line, and see what the Lord has for us. So last week, Mitch started, started us off and preached on excellence. This week, I'm preaching on suffering. I kind of felt like I got the short end of the stick on that, uh, but I wasn't the one that made the schedule. And the more I prepared for this, uh, actually the more excited I got about preaching on joy and suffering. Because that's something that's really unique to us as believers, um, is the fact that we can experience joy and suffering. Um, so, it seems odd. Um, it, it, it really does seem like a, a strange task to teach on joy within suffering, something that seems ironic. But in reality, the two go hand in hand. The fact is, to be human and to be alive is to both actively pursue happiness and joy while often experiencing pain and sorrow. It happens within the course of a given day. You can be happy one hour and you can be terribly sad the next. And it breaks my heart to say, I know that there are some people in the room right now who are sad because their current situation in life is so heavy. It's, it's, it's hard to even fathom what happiness will feel like again. But pain is a part of humanity. Job 5.7 says, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. It's just a fact of life. Pain is a part of being human and alive. And what's interesting about pain is it causes us to sort of circle the wagon and really become focused inwardly on ourselves and forget that there are a lot of other people around us who are also going through pain. There's just something inside of us. There's a reflex that when we are going through suffering and pain, we sort of rally around ourselves and seek as hard as we can to get whole and healed. And because of that, we forget that everyone around us is also battling and at war with their own stuff. Sometimes in suffering, it helps to know that we're not alone. I could ask folks here to raise their hands if they have felt the pain of loss of a loved one in their life or if they felt bereavement within their life. If they face something like cancer or illness, some significant disability, maybe the pain of loss, the loss of things or a job or money or a friend. Have they experienced anxiety or humiliation or rejection or shame or fear? 
If they've been the victim of prejudice or abuse or injustice, I could ask for a show of hands if anything like this has happened to you, but I'll go ahead and tell you that I know for a fact all our hands would go up, every single one. Oftentimes when we're in it, the only pain we can see is the one we are experiencing. And what's interesting is if you pause long enough and recognize that something happens in our lives during these seasons, your joy tends to evaporate during these seasons. It disappears like the morning dew. But wouldn't it be amazing and such a gift if you could walk out of Griggs today and could protect your joy even while experiencing unavoidable human pain? Would that not be worth a whole lot to all of us? To go through something so difficult in our circumstances and to maintain joy in the Lord, that is what we have available to us through a man named Paul in a book called Philippians. I know that many of you are neck deep in pain and suffering, and maybe you've even stopped listening because your mind has just started racing with the worry about what it is you're dealing with. And so I wanna pray for you. Also, we as a church wanna pray for others. We wanna pray for our neighborhood and we wanna pray for the world. And the fact that coming through and out of a season like the one that we've come through the last couple of years, it, it was hard. A lot of people are still reeling back because so many parts of their life were shaken. So what we wanna do this morning is, is pray for the suffering that's being experienced all around the world. So please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you knowing that you are sympathetic to our pain because you sent your son Jesus, not only to reveal who you are to us, but also to be a mediator to bring us to you. And you know what it's like to be a man. You know pain and you know sorrow and you know loneliness and you know tears and you know blood. You know all of these things. You know abuse, you know injustice, you know prejudice you know bereavement, you know it all. Lord, you know the loss of freedom, the loss of things, even the loss of life. And so we come to you, the one who is our great high priest, the one who can take us and who can sympathize with us, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so we come to you, our maker, we bow before you and we thank you that you have the, the power to help people in need. You've helped me and you've helped all of us, Lord. And I pray for those right now who are struggling at such a deep level within their heart with something that they're going through. And I pray that you would give them hope. Would you draw near to them? Would you help them to see that your presence in their life is the peace of their life? I pray that you would help them to feel peace and feel security and feel joy this morning in being near you. This morning, Lord, please speak through my weakness and help us to learn about suffering and joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That was, was that my daughter? That wasn't, it sounded like, my, oh, thank you. Um, all right, if you'll please join me again in your Bibles in Philippians chapter one. We're gonna go through this again, verses 12 to verses 18. Because regardless of how your suffering is, has been, you may look at me and think, man, does this guy have any credibility to talk about suffering? And the fact is, you may be right. 
Although I feel like with our two kids and all the dirty diapers I've seen this last week, I could make, a, I could make somewhat of an argument. Um, but your, your resume of suffering may be much longer and deeper than mine, but this is not a contest. And I believe we can all agree that we can look at Paul and know he endured tremendous suffering. A man who wrote Philippians and a man who can empathize and sympathize with all of us. We can learn from him. In fact, a few years before he wrote Philippians, he wrote another book called 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 11 of that book, this is what he says about his suffering up to that point in time. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 27, I've been through far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day I was adrift at sea in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And this man, roughly a decade after he went into a city called Philippi and planted a church where he shared the gospel with them, he went to Jerusalem. And eventually he was arrested. And then a few years later, he found himself in a prison in Rome. And there, the Philippians, the church in Philippi, they hear of Paul's suffering. They take up a love offering and, and they send it to him. And in, in his response, he writes a thank you letter to them, which is what we now call the book of Philippians. And in verse 12 through 18, this is what he says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Oh, some indeed, they preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love and knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So I wanna show you all a few truths here that all relate to Jesus before we take the Lord's Supper this morning. The first is that following Jesus will bring suffering. Now, you may have been led to believe at some point in your life that following Jesus was gonna be an insurance policy from all pain, but that's simply not true. The Bible teaches us that, that following Jesus will bring some level of suffering. Now, your suffering may not look like Paul's or mine or anyone else's, but it will cause something to take place in your life. You see, when we commit our life to Jesus Christ, we enter a battlefield, 
a spiritual arena wearing a jersey that Satan, our enemy, hates. So we inherit an enemy. The commission of Jesus Christ that says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them and teach them, that commission inherently brings conflict. Because that commission is taking a message that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father in heaven except through me. So that causes a lot of tension. And so when Paul says, what has happened to me in verse 12, we need to know what it is exactly that has happened to him. But before we do, we need to discuss the difference between happiness and joy. So happiness comes from an old English word, hap. And hap means luck or chance. It's tied to our circumstances. Happiness is tied to what happens. And so when he's saying here, that's what's happened to me, he's saying there's circumstances in my life that don't make me happy. I don't like chains around my wrist. I don't like life in prison. I don't like the beatings. I don't like looking at the scars on my body. My circumstances aren't what I want. And yet at the end, we find Paul has joy. So now what happened to Paul? Well, just one or two years after he writes 2 Corinthians, that's the book that we just read with the long list of horrible things that happened to Paul. Well, some more bad stuff happened to Paul. Paul decides he wants to go to Jerusalem and it happens to be that Jerusalem is where his enemies are. And now his enemies are not his enemies because he's wronged them. He hasn't uh, beat them up or stole their lunch money. No, they're his enemies because they do not like the gospel. They do not believe in Jesus Christ. They do not believe Jesus rose from the dead. They do not believe that forgiveness is found by trusting Jesus. They believe that God's grace is earned by good works. And so they don't like the message of the cross or the gospel. They don't like the message of grace. And therefore, they deeply resist and resent the messenger, Paul. Well, Paul feels so compelled, he has to get to Jerusalem where all of these people who hate him are. And when he arrives, he decides to go into what should be the scariest part of the city for him, the temple. And when his enemies see him, they cause a riot. They start beating him up. They, st they actually are beating him up and start dragging him out of the temple. And it says, in order to kill him. And about that time, the Roman soldiers who were under the rule of Rome, they see what's happening, that there's an uprising. There's this riot that's starting. And so they run in and it says that they protect Paul by arresting him. They bind him with chains and the people are still beating him so badly that the soldiers pick him up over their shoulder Take it, they are headed out in order to take him out to safety. And when Paul is almost out of the temple to safety, almost free of the beatings and, and free of, safe from all the things being thrown at him, Paul goes, not yet, put me down. I got one sermon in me for today and I wanna give it right now, like a boss. So the soldiers put him down and it says that Paul motions with them with his hands in chains and they all become quiet 
and he starts to preach the gospel that Jesus Christ loved us so much that he came to this earth to die for our sin. And after he was dead, three days later, he rose from the dead. And not only that, but the gospel should be proclaimed not only in Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth so that Jew and Gentile alike can become God's people. And once he went there, they erupt with anger. People started losing their minds. And so the soldiers rush him out of there. And over the next two and a half years, Paul goes through three different trials. He's moved to Caesarea. There's an attempt on his life. He's in prison. And finally, he appeals to Caesar. So they put him on a boat to Rome. And when he gets on the boat, things, things seem to be turning around. Like they seem to be going a little better. He makes a friend. But then the boat sinks. So he and the folks on the boat swim to shore. And I don't know if you know what happens when you're uh, shipwrecked, but they're wet, they're cold, so they make a fire. And when Paul reaches down to get some firewood, he gets bit by a snake. <laughs> it's like, it just can't get any worse. And it, I, I kind of understand that there's all these people who are opposed to him because they don't like the gospel, but a snake, a snake <laughs> doesn't care about the gospel. So it's kind of like, Lord, why not give Paul a break? My goodness. So Paul finally makes it to Rome. They get a new boat. And when Paul arrives in Rome, his prize is to be thrown in jail. And by the time that we believe he writes Philippians, he's actually under house arrest. And yet he's chained to a soldier during this time. And you need to understand that the only thing Paul did is follow Jesus. You see, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You hear this often. I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, when you're following Jesus, you're following someone that the world killed. There's an animosity involved when you follow Jesus. So why follow him? Why did Paul follow him? Why do you follow him? Why do I follow him? And this is why. Because being near Jesus is better than the absence of suffering. Let me give you a little illustration of this. We've all seen a wedding. In fact, we've got a couple newlyweds here who got married a few weeks ago here on, on this stage, Abigail and Samuel. So many of us, um, we've either been in a wedding, we've been to a wedding. Some of us have been brides or grooms at a wedding. And there's a point in the wedding where you take each other's hand, you give your vows and your rings and you exchange. And what you say in this moment is, I do. I take you as my husband or as my wife. And the interesting thing, at least in our context, is we know each other. And so we know what we're getting is at least partially uh, not good. <laughs> we know that there are flaws in one, than one another. We know that we're all sinners. We know, and we usually, we often know how we normally sin. So we know that if that person I'm about to marry comes from a family of humans, that there is some brokenness. And what it means to me uh, 
is when you think about it, we look at this person and we say, you know what? With this person who comes with all these human flaws, these elements of suffering that I'm welcoming into my life. And the reason I welcome them, I welcome them because I love you. You're better than the absence of the pain and inconvenience and the suffering that are going to come my way because those things are attached to you. So when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're saying, Jesus, I do. And there are no flaws and there are no weakness and there's no sin in Jesus Christ. And yet there is a significant part of the world who has tremendous animosity towards Jesus. And to associate yourself with Jesus is to bring upon suffering that came his way. And the question really always comes down to this. Is Jesus the reason you came to Jesus? Because he is the prize of the redeemed. Following Jesus will put us in unfamiliar places with unbelieving people who may accuse or belittle or reject. And I want to beg you, do not buy the lie that coming to Christ is an insurance policy from pain, discomfort. When Jesus himself said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He is the treasure of the redeemed. He is the prize. If you come to Jesus for any other reason than Jesus, your journey as a Christian will be marked by frequent frustration, sporadic joy, and often painful accusations that come from your mouth about his faithfulness to your deal. He has promised to be with you. He is the prize. He is the word made flesh. He's our creator, our sustainer, our ruler, the righteous judge. He is compassionate. He is kind. He is generous. And he is your prize. And with him will come suffering, but he is so worth it. Jesus is absolutely worth it. So the second thing is loving Jesus will protect our joy. So following Jesus, it will bring suffering. But you notice that he may be in prison, but the last thing that we read, he said, and in that I rejoice. You see, joy is the good feeling in our souls that is produced by God when we're near Jesus. Of Jesus, it's spoken in Psalms 1611. It says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. In other words, to be near Jesus is to be near joy. Happiness is tied to our happenings and joy is tied to Jesus. But rejoicing is a little different than joy. Rejoicing is the personal application that sends our joy out of our mouth or out of our facial expressions or out of our hands so that other people can recognize this person is joyful. There's joy within because he or she rejoices. And here he is rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Well, he tells us why. He says, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. You see, each one of us, we have a chief love. You can, you can love lots of things all at the same time, but all of us have one chief love, one chief treasure. It stands above the rest. 
It's what you dream about. When you have nothing else to think about in your mind, that's where your mind runs to for security and for protection. It's your treasure, it's your chief joy, and all of us have one. One of the ways to identify what it is is to ask the question, what if you took away would also remove my joy? For some of us in the room, it's our career because our identity is tied to our job. This is what people know about me. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm praised for. And so you take joy, you take that away and you take my joy away. For some people, it's a person. It's a wife, a husband, a child, a parent, a friend. It's a person. We look to God and we say, Lord, if you took that person away, not only would I not have happiness, I wouldn't have joy. There'd be no joy in my life. And then for some people, it's security. Security that's wrapped up maybe in finances or your house or to have enough money so that you have that sense of security. And if I have no security, then there's just no way I can have joy. And for some people, it's really a much lesser thing. It could be a college sports team. You're so hungry for life and joy throughout your life that you're just saying, oh, it's coming. This is our year. All of a sudden, August comes around and then you lose the first two games. It's like, bummer, I've lost all my joy. Now here's the deal. Our joy is vulnerable whenever we treasure what can be lost. Our joy is vulnerable whenever we treasure what can be lost. So let me just tell you something. You're gonna lose your career and your spouse and your kids and your parents and your security and the football game, you're gonna lose all of those things at some point. And so if we tie our joy, our central treasure around anything other than what cannot be lost or threatened, we will one day lose our joy. Now, we may love other things and find happiness in them and God can bring joy through other things, but if Jesus Christ is not our central joy, then we will be sporadic in our joy throughout our entire life. One of my favorite verses that comes to mind is it's Psalms 37, four, where we, we are reminded to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, Paul's treasure was Jesus. That's why in this little passage we read, he spoke of proclaiming Jesus or Jesus being proclaimed four different times. You see, Jesus was with Paul in prison and he was being proclaimed outside of prison. And so joy was spilling out of his mouth. See, unlike every other treasure you could possibly have in the world, Jesus cannot be lost. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Nothing can separate us from his love, which is why surely God's kindest command in the entire Bible is found in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Why? Because if we're loving God with all of our heart, our joy is protected. There's no command within the scripture that is more protective of your happiness and joy through life and through eternity than love God. Because he cannot be threatened 
He cannot leave. He is with us forever. He cannot be defeated. And so loving Jesus will protect our joy. And so there's pain coming as we follow Jesus. And there's a joy that'll be protected if we love him. But then the third thing is this, is trusting Jesus will fortify our joy. And this is what he does. It's, it's fascinating to me. You see, now we, we oftentimes hear and use the words and it's, and it's important that we do when we first trust Christ, we use the word trust. When we pray to receive Christ, when it's the very first time we go from not trusting to all of a sudden I'm trusting Christ with my entire life. And that's built in with what I mean by trusting Jesus will fortify our joy. But I wanna take it a step further because most of us in the room have already trusted Christ the first time. But now all of a sudden we have a new piece of information. And now we have to ask the question repeatedly throughout our life, am I going to trust Jesus with my life? Now that I see this about giving or going or serving or something in life, something that I see that he's telling me to, am I gonna trust? Am I going to trust when I don't understand what's happening in life? Am I gonna trust when the room is entirely dark? You see, this is what Paul did. And this was why he was so captivated, I think, with rejoicing. Paul also was like us. He was trying to understand God's pace and his place. Why am I here? And why has God not gotten me out of here yet? <laughs> What's he doing? And it's not all clear to him. But the thing that Paul kept doing was leaning Godward. He kept looking to God. He kept saying, God, I'm trusting you in all of this. I don't know why I'm here, and yet I'm still looking towards you. I'm optimistic. I'm not skeptical that somehow you've died or you're, you're no longer there anymore. No, I know you're there. I just don't understand what's going on and, and why. I'm looking to you though, Lord. I'm looking to you for perspective, and I need you to fortify my joy. And what God does is a miracle. Imagine with me for a moment that Paul is in a dark room with three, win three windows. The dark room is the darkness of the prison in his own heart. And God not only gives him one window of perspective to look through, not only two, but three. And he tells us each one of these three perspectives that now give him new insight that allows him to rejoice and be refreshed. In the first window that he looks through, he says, you know what? I've never thought about this, he says, but it looks like it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of uh, that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, at some point in, t in time in the church of Rome, they were like, you know, there are these imperial guards there were either 9,000 or 10,000 of them, depending on who you read. Um, but they seemed untouched by the gospel. And you can just imagine, you're like, man, how are we gonna reach these people? 
We can't even have a conversation with them. And Paul looks around and goes, you know, I always wondered that too. But now you know what? I don't like being in prison, but it just so happens that I'm chained to these people 24 <laughs> seven, all day long. So we don't know exactly if Paul's situation was like what we believe in history, but we believe it would, it would have been his situation pretty normal. And so we know he was chained to them and we know that from Acts, but we don't know necessarily if they gave him a little bit more comfort because it was very clear that during house arrest, they gave him some extra freedoms, but he said he was chained. And, it, and if he had, would have been a normal criminal, what would have happened uh, is that the soldier would have been chained to him for six hours until somebody else went on shift and he got off shift and then someone else was chained to him for six hours. And so 24 hours a day, he would have been chained to one of these royal bodyguards. And instead of looking at these bodyguards as the problem, he looked at them as the opportunity. He said, you know, I've always wanted to tell the gospel to these people. And now all of a sudden God, God saw fit that one of them is chained to me for six hours. And at the end of the book, we actually find out that many of these people come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's pretty remarkable. And not only that, not only did he preach to these guards and other people as they came to visit him, but during this time, he also wrote Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. Think about how blessed we are as individuals and as the church that Paul didn't get sour and gloomy but instead he picked up a pen. And so he said, one perspective is God's opened up opportunities for me. Well, then he goes over to the second window and he says, you know what? God gave me a second window to look through that gives me a little bit of hope and joy right now to see what's happening in spite of all my suffering. Paul says in verse 14, then most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, he looks outside and he sees the other Christians in the city. They're like, you know, Paul can't do it. So I guess we better. So they really, they step up. At one time they were afraid, but now all of a sudden they started exercising a little bit more courage. And so Paul goes, praise God for that. The church is growing as a result of this suffering, and so let it be done. And then Paul goes to a third window, and the third is, it's pretty sad to me. He starts talking about the motives that some people are preaching with. He says that some of them, yes, they, they do it in goodwill, out of love, knowing that I'm here. But then he says other people preach Christ out of envy, in rivalry and selfishness, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. It's important to be real clear that they are all preaching Jesus. In other words, they're not false teachers. These are gospel teachers, which proves that we've been a pretty messy bunch since the beginning. But what he just said was this, just imagine going up to a person and saying, hey, I hear you preaching the gospel. Why do you preach it? And the person says, well, first and foremost, I believe it. 
But the reason I preach it is because I'm trying to show up this guy in prison that I'm so jealous about. What a horrible thing. So Paul's in prison. He's like, well, this is a big problem, but he's leaning into God. And so God opens the third window and he says, you know what? The good news is, it's that Jesus is being proclaimed. He says, God's using all of my hurts to tell other people about my greatest love. And so I have to rejoice that Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. And so Psalm 28, seven, it says that the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him, my heart trusts and I'm helped. It's the song of Paul while he's in this prison. He's looking to God to trust him. So what do we do with this before we take the Lord's Supper? The first application I have for you is this. Let's begin our wrestling by settling on Jesus's resurrection. Some of you right now, you're in the middle of a pit. And so you're wrestling, you're wrestling if there's a God, you're wrestling if church is worth it, you're wrestling if the Bible is true, you're wrestling with God's character, with his goodness, you're wrestling with all kinds of things. And you could spend months and years needlessly wrestling because you are hurting. And let me encourage you to take the most pivotal step that, that you can take first, and this is to settle on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even the Bible says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we as Christians are still in our sins. There's no sacrifice and we among all people are most to be pitied. But thankfully, if Jesus rose from the dead, what it means is that not only is he God, but he has all authority. And having all authority, he endorsed the Old Testament, he authorized the New Testament, and he promised to never leave or forsake us. Now, what does this do? Even in my own life, when I go through seasons where I'm wrestling with God, God, I don't understand this. It just makes me frustrated. Why is it happening this way? Are you really close to me right now? Are you far from me? I run to the resurrection. I go back to the central reasons, the evidence of the resurrection that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and I go back to the gospel. I read that again and I recite that again. And I think this is true, it is so true. And when I know that it's true, what it does is instead of me instinctively leaning away, looking for something to tie my anchor to, now all of a sudden I lean into the scripture and I lean into my circumstances looking for what God is going to do because I know that he rose from the dead. The gospel changes everything. He has all authority. He is for me. So when you don't know where to look in your pain, look to the cross and the resurrection and set your anchor there. Second is, let's strain to see how our pain could advance the gospel. Pain is not gonna leave us on, the side of on this side of eternity. It will always be a part of the human experience. It'll be a part of life until we leave this earth. So we might as well use it like Paul did. So the next time you think I'm stuck in this job or I'm stuck in this class or I'm stuck with all these nurses and doctors because I have, I'm sick and I never asked for this. Look at the people who now surround you that once did not. Look at the people in your life that may only see 
his suffering for their sake through how you handle yours. And let it be a window where they can see the sufferings of Christ that gives you hope and that gives you joy, even when you're going through a hard time. And last is, let's remember that Jesus endured suffering for us. He endured suffering for us. He went to a cross in order to pay for our sin. And one of the things that God gives us is called the Lord's Supper that we get to do now. And it's to remember and proclaim that we remember that somebody willingly, voluntarily went through unreal suffering to bring us good. And so for those that'll be serving us, if you wanna go ahead and come up to the front, our ushers and Andrew. Um, so let me remind us of all, just a couple of things. First of all, for those of you who have never trusted Christ, you can do that right now. If you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, we welcome you to this table. But if you have not yet trusted Christ, if you're not certain yet, if you're not leaning toward Jesus or you just don't believe yet, then the Bible actually says to let these things pass. Taking them is to affirm to others that your treasure is in heaven, that you treasure them. And so we would ask if you've not trusted Christ to let it pass. But if you know Christ as your savior, we welcome you to the table. As the elements are being passed to us, the bread and the cup, I would ask you to consider your own heart and ask that the Lord search your heart to see if there's any sin that you need to confess so that you can take this with a clear conscience. So as they're passed, please take one of the stacked cups. Go ahead, feel free to separate the two um, as you wait. And once everyone has received the element, I will lead us in taking them together as a church. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we thank you, Jesus, that you willingly went through indescribable suffering and pain in order to bring us good and to bring us close to you. And so we know that you're for us. We don't always understand why we're going through what we are going through, but God, I pray that this meal, that this reminder would be just that. It would remind us that even in our pain, that you're with us, that you see what we're going through. So we confess our sin to you during this time. We also confess our love for you during this time. So you use it as you see fit, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.